the latest from 7 News with Angela Cox. Good evening and welcome tonight. Shut down. Melbourne's construction industry closed after violent vaccine protests. Breaking tonight, Pfizer declares its vaccine is safe for children aged 5 to 11. A doctor involved in the trials joins me. COVID numbers fall in New South Wales as new claims emerge around Queensland's border rules. Also new this hour, royal baby news. Beatrice welcomes a baby girl. More details soon. But first, the Victorian government has sensationally shut down the construction industry for two weeks after tradies clashed with police during protests over vaccine mandates. Here's what it looked like on the ground today. Georgia Commonsoli is outside the CFMEU headquarters in Melbourne, Georgia. Dan Andrews has shown he is not budging a bit when it comes to these vaccination rules. And not at all. The state government was in crisis talks earlier this evening and only in the last hour they finally announced that they're shutting down the construction industry from midnight tonight for two weeks. It doesn't affect the whole of Victoria. The areas that it does affect are those in lockdown. So that's all the metropolitan Melbourne, Ballarat, Geelong, the Surf Coast and the Mitchell Shire. Now the decision comes from what they say is considerable case transmission amongst the industry but it also could be a direct response to the protest activity we saw here earlier today. But the shutdown means that they'll go from a capacity of 25% on site down to zero. Georgia, these protests today, they looked ugly, but is it a fair representation of the entire construction industry there or just a few agitators? Well, Angie, it was incredibly violent. They arrived here at 9 o'clock this morning. Things didn't erupt till around 4 o'clock. But you're right, it's really not a fair depiction of the tradies here in Victoria. There was only just over 100 protesters here. There are tens of thousands of tradies who will be affected from this shutdown. Recent survey data shows that two-thirds of them are in favour of that mandatory vaccine grab. The RSPCA are asking people to come forward after an incident today at the protest where a member of the protest assaulted a dog. They want to know exactly who that person is and what happened there. But sadly, from online tonight, and it looks like there will be more protest activity here outside union offices tomorrow. OK, Georgia Commonsoli in Melbourne for us. Thank you. In breaking news, Pfizer has tonight said its COVID vaccine is safe for 5 to 11-year-olds and shows a robust antibody response. I'm joined now by paediatrics infectious disease doctor Flor Minos, who has been running a study testing Pfizer in young children. Thank you for joining us, doctor. Pfizer says it's safe. What's your reaction to that announcement? Thank you so much. Well, this is absolutely wonderful news and um, very glad to see that the information is being shared because it is, I think, what we expected. We are uh, evaluating uh, a dose that was very carefully selected for children and we are seeing uh, these preliminary um, data being shared, being consistent with what we expected, that children would be able to tolerate the vaccine well and that it would um, hopefully have good, robust, uh, robust immune responses. What would you say to parents who are still a bit concerned about vaccinating their children who don't think of COVID as an illness that really affects children? You know, um, I think that we need to come back to what we are seeing now with this current pandemic that is driven by the Delta variant. It is different from what we had a year ago. This is a variant that does affect children we are seeing this in every place, every hospital in the countries uh, that we are 
having data reported from, where uh, children represent a good proportion, maybe one out of four, one out of every three uh, cases of, of COVID now, in that uh, are being hospitalized, they're um, susceptible to severe disease, and we are seeing a different population. We are um, now uh, seeing younger children who are otherwise healthy, and also uh, school-aged children who are otherwise healthy, healthy who get COVID as well. So how quickly could Pfizer be approved by the FDA to be given to kids 5 to 11 there in the US? Well, according to the information that was shared, um, it is hoped that it will be soon. Uh, from what I see, uh, FDA's comments have been that their process will be prompt, um, taking weeks instead of months, for example. And so it is anticipated that it will be in, in the fall. We are currently, obviously, almost at the end of uh, September. Fall is about to start. And um, I think the hope is that um, sometime by uh, end of October, early November, we would have a vaccine that we can give to school-aged children. I think that's going to be a huge relief for a lot of parents. How excited are you personally, having been working on this study, to finally have this news? It's, it's great. You know, we have had absolutely outstanding volunteers, the parents who bring their children to the clinical studies, the children themselves are very excited to be part of it. They know they are here for a larger purpose than um, themselves. And uh, they're very eager to see this data as well out and the availability of the vaccine for everyone, not just for those participants in the study. So I am very um, happy to see this moving forward. Of course, we would like to continue with old ages in pediatric groups uh, so that we have the opportunity to really protect our children against COVID-19. And I guess being someone who sees it on the front line, those young babies and children being affected by COVID, it must hit personally for you as well. Yes, it, it is very sad because, um, again, we have had different uh, perceptions or ideas of what COVID could do to children. And uh, it is indeed um, devastating when you see an otherwise healthy child uh, coming into the hospital with this severe disease. Keep in mind, we're still learning uh, about COVID in children. We, we don't know much about its long-term effects and other consequences of having the acute infection. So having an opportunity to prevent this infection now uh, is a really uh, wonderful news. Okay, Dr. Flo Minos in Houston for us. Thank in you. In more positive vaccine news, states are beginning to receive their first allocations of Moderna doses with pharmacies across Victoria and Sydney. Kicking off the rollout of Australia's third vaccine, Queensland pharmacies will begin vaccinating with Moderna from Wednesday. That comes as our vaccination rate accelerates. In the past 24 hours, more than 172,000 vaccines were received across the country, a record Sunday. That takes the total number of vaccines administered to almost 24 million 24.8 million in 37 days will hit the first reopening target of 70% fully vaccinated. By the 11th of November, 80% of the country will have received both of their shots. It's been a divisive issue, different lockdown rules for different parts of Sydney. But tonight, hotspot suburbs have returned to living under essentially the same restrictions as everywhere else in the city. Serena Andaloro is in Sydney for us tonight. Serena, the Premier says vaccinations are making these gradual freedoms possible, rates particularly picking up among teenagers. 
Yeah, and a heartening show of confidence from parents. Good evening to you. 12 to 15-year-olds spearheading a vaccination surge. 20% of that age group have now had their first dose. In total, 82% uh, of us have had our first dose of the vaccine here in New South Wales. 52% double-dosed. It means we're tracking quite comfortably towards that 70% double-dose vaccination rate when life will hopefully feel a little more normal. And we're set to hit that target a little earlier than usual, forecasts say, um, early next month, so Freedom Day, uh, soon on the horizon. Mm. And Serena, we saw COVID infections dip below 1,000 for the first time in three weeks. That's great news. Have we seen the peak yet? Yeah, look, 935 cases today, Ange. Um, hopefully uh, an encouraging sign that we've hopefully seen the, those case numbers peak, but the Premier's urging us not to get our hopes up that all of this hard work and progress could quite easily be undone. We also saw four deaths today, which fewer deaths than yesterday, but there are dark and deadly days ahead with hospital stress set to peak around mid next month, and that's the same time that restrictions are going to ease. So um, there are dark and and quite difficult days ahead. Yeah, indeed. OK, thanks so much, Serena. There are questions tonight over whether Queensland could go rogue and demand a 90% national vaccination target before relaxing the border rules. Georgia Chumley is live in Brisbane for us tonight. Georgie, is there any official word on this? Good evening, Ange. Well, Anastasia Palaszczuk has publicly said she's refusing to commit to National Cabinet's 80% vaccination target. And today, well, she still hasn't budged and hasn't said anything further on this 90%. But it is understood that the Queensland Cabinet has endorsed that 90% uh, vaccination figure. But the Premier doesn't want to say anything just yet. She says that it will be two weeks before we find out exactly what the limit will be because she wants to get information back from the Doherty Institute with more research as to how opening the border will affect children. But it is expected, and the Queensland Health Officer, Chief Health Officer, she said last week on the record that she does want 90% of Queenslanders to be vaccinated. Now, the decision is likely driven by Labor polling, which has said that the majority of Queenslanders actually want the borders to remain closed because they're scared of a Delta outbreak like in New South Wales and in Victoria. And Georgie, Brisbane is on alert tonight after an unexpected positive result? That's right, Andrew. Well, there's been two positive cases who have gone through the Brisbane domestic airport. One of those of particular concern, which has uh, uncovered a loophole in our quarantine system. They came from Newcastle, spent four hours in the Brisbane domestic airport before moving on to the Northern Territory. And there is another incident of concern, another uh, co positive COVID case just over the border, an individual who's been to Byron, Ballina and Tweed. So there are concerns over what what that impact will have on the border bubble. Definitely some border communities nervously waiting tonight and we are expecting an update tomorrow. OK, Georgie Chumley in Brisbane for us. Thank you. The Prime Minister is right now in Hawaii where his plane is refuelling before heading to New York ahead of a day of high-level discussions with world leaders. Political reporter Taylor Aiken is standing by with the latest. Taylor, the PM has a big day planned tomorrow. 
Yes, a jam-packed schedule and with a meeting with US President Joe Biden top of the agenda tomorrow. Prime Minister Scott Morrison meeting with the US Commander-in-Chief in New York, also joined by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. Scott Morrison also set to meet with President of the European Commission, the Federal Chancellor of Austria and the Prime Minister of Sweden. A significant move by EU nations given the growing tensions with France who claim they were blindsided after Australia tore up a $90 billion submarine deal last week. Tomorrow night, Scott Morrison will host UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the Australian Ambassador Arthur Sinodinos' residence in Washington. Prime Minister Scott Morrison saying the key topic for all leaders is ensuring stability in the Indo-Pacific at a time when the world around us is changing rapidly. So, Taylor, what can we expect for the rest of the trip? Well, Ange, the itinerary doesn't slow down, with the first face-to-face meeting of the Quad scheduled for later this week. President Biden, Prime Minister Suga of Japan and Prime Minister Modi from India joining Scott Morrison, set to discuss the future of the Indo-Pacific, including the threat posed by China. COVID vaccines, international supply chains and climate change will also be hot topics of discussion. Australia's climate policy in the spotlight again in the lead-up to that glad Climate Summit in November with Scott Morrison under pressure to match other world leaders in committing to net zero emissions by 2050. OK, Taylor Aiken, Prison Canberra, thank you. This week marks a dark milestone. It's been 18 months since Australia slammed shut its border to the rest of the world. Tonight, 38,000 Australians are waiting to come home from overseas. And quarantine caps are making the prospect of a Christmas with family seem out of reach again. One of those trying to find a way back is Christian Barker, an Australian freelance journalist based in Singapore. Thanks for joining us, Christian. You've been facing an uphill battle against Singapore Airlines since March. Talk us through your experience. Look, I, I certainly can't put the blame on, on Singapore Airlines. I think they're just dealing with the situation that they uh, that they have. But yeah, way back in in March, when there was initially talk about the uh, the travel bubble between Singapore and Australia opening up, we you know very excitedly uh, booked flights back for uh, for July. Uh, obviously, that set of flights were were cancelled. Um, unfortunately, we uh, we also had booked flights for uh, for Christmas to get the get the family back. It's been um, it's been two years since I've seen my parents. Uh, so two years since uh, our kids have seen their grandparents, um, both the grandparents and the and the kids. That's really hard on. Um, and so yeah, when the when the flights were once again cancelled for uh, for December, it was absolutely devastating. Mm. The kids must be missing their grandparents so much. They must have grown so much since the last time they've seen them. Absolutely. I mean, um, just going through those photographs that you guys asked me to, to send through today, and I was looking for shots of my, my daughters with, uh, with their grandmothers and their, uh, and their grandpa, and, yeah, they're, uh, they're completely different. They're, uh, they've grown up and um, just shot up over the last two years. It's amazing. Are you shocked that so many Australian citizens have spent so long not being able to get home under the circumstances and really the fact that maybe a lot of Australians here don't appreciate just how difficult it is for you guys? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's certainly not like having a, a holiday cancelled. It's, um, you know, despite having lived in Singapore for, for 15 years, so many of my 
you know, closest, and so many of our closest friends uh, and, and pretty much all of our family are back there in Australia. And, you know, there's only so much that a, that a Zoom call can do. It's just not the same as, uh, as hugging your mum, is it? Qantas has flights scheduled from Singapore from the 18th of December. Um, will that help? Have you tried to book those flights to get you back here in time for Christmas? I think it, it's 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 a matter of clarity, really. We don't know what's happening with the with the quarantines and whether that's going to be uh, still a 14-day hotel quarantine at Christmas time. At the moment, um, I believe Qantas have got flights that have opened up from the 18th of December. So if there's still a 14-day quarantine, that would mean that we'd be flying back to be spending Christmas and New Year's in a hermetically sealed hotel room um, and missing out on, on seeing our family, which is the whole objective of the uh, of the trip. So um, it's, it's a little bit of a wait and see. And, and I think this is what the airlines have really been saying at the moment. The statements from Singapore Airlines earlier this week were that they're seeking clarity from uh, from the government um, as to what the what the what the caps will be and what the quarantine uh, levels will be in uh, in December. You know, we'd love to we'd love to see that as well. Um, you know, Singapore does. Uh, if an Australian wanted to fly into Singapore at the moment, it would be a seven day um, hotel quarantine that they would have to do. So, I'd love to see Australia reciprocate that. If you can get back to Australia on one of those flights, say December eighteen. When you get back here, will you be impacted by the domestic border closures? Exactly. I mean, my parents live up in, in Noosa. My mother-in-law, who's um, you see here, is a, is a widow. She's all on her own um, down, in, uh, down in Sydney. So that's, that's the other thing that, uh, you know, if we were to fly into Queensland, would we be able to get down to Sydney? If we were to fly into Sydney, would we be able to get over the border into Queensland? Playing devil's advocate, a lot of Australians might say, well, this is what we need to keep Australians safe. Um, you were overseas, it's your kind of bad luck. Um, we need to keep Australians safe. Uh, what is your response to that? Look, I, I think that's fair enough. And I, and I think, um, you know, Australia has, despite some hiccups and some hurdles, has really handled the, uh, the pandemic um, you know, incredibly well compared to, to many, many other countries. And if you just look at the fatality rates in Australia compared to most countries in, in Europe or, or the United States, you know, Australia's done incredibly well. So I can, I can see the point there, but um, perhaps it's, uh, it's, it's looking at a case-by-case -case basis. And if you're going to talk about countries that have handled this thing well, um, you know, Singapore is the absolute gold standard. We're up at like 82 or 83 percent of the country is fully vaccinated now and, uh, and maybe accepting a little bit more traffic from from countries where the, the risk is particularly low um, might be the, the more compassionate response. And I know a frustration for a lot of people in your situation, sports stars and celebrities being allowed in when Australian yeah. citizens aren't. I guess that's also frustrating. Yeah, sometimes I wish I was Caitlyn Jenner. I don't know. <laughs> Do you have any hope that you're going to get back for Christmas with your family so your kids can see their grandparents? Absolutely. No, look, we're, uh, we're still keeping hope alive. And, and, and if some sort of solution um, does come up, we're, we're definitely going to seize on that. Um, you know, it's been, it's been a long time since, uh, since making it back. And, uh, you know, as the old ads for Qantas say we still call Australia home, so we can't wait to make it back. Yeah, and they're making us all cry at the moment. OK, well, thank you so much, Christian. We do hope you and your family can make it home in time for Christmas. Thank you so much.
The family of American blogger Gabby Petito have paid tribute to the 22-year-old after police found a body in a Wyoming national park. Authorities were alerted when Petito's fiancé returned from their cross-country trip on the 1st of September alone. 23-year-old Brian Laundrie has been named a person of interest. He has not been seen since last Tuesday when he told his family he was going for a hike. And at least eight people have been killed after a student opened fire at a Russian university. Terrified students jumped from first floor windows to escape the building while others barricaded themselves in classrooms. The gunman was shot dead at the scene 1,300 kilometres east of Moscow. And Princess Beatrice has announced the birth of her first child with husband Eduardo Mapelli Mozzi. The baby girl, whose name has not been revealed, was born just before midnight on Saturday, weighing just under three kilograms. Beatrice thanked all the staff at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. The little girl is a younger sister for Beatrice, Beatrice's stepson, Wolfie, and the Queen's 12 great-grandchild. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The number of compensation claims from workers who catch COVID on the job is on the rise in Australia. Network Finance Editor Gemma Acton is here with more on this story. Gemma, which sectors have seen the most claims? Well, Angie, it's really the people who've been doing frontline work. So that's healthcare workers, police, firefighters, very understandably, as they're often at risk of being exposed every single day to the virus. But beyond that, we're seeing people from across a whole variety of, of, of industries also put forward claims and for different things, perhaps for saying they're catching COVID on the job or perhaps for mental health issues that stem from having to do a job which exposes them to the risk of COVID. Now, one of the problems with seeing these uh, compensation claims rise is how insurers are likely to respond. Obviously, if there are more claims coming in, uh, insurers naturally, their business model is to raise premiums. And more expensive work cover premiums is an expense that many businesses can very much ill afford after the, the last 18 months that they've had. And is this going to make business owners nervous about trying to make vaccines mandatory? Because if people get side effects from the vaccines, could they sue? Yeah, so this is a really murky issue. If a business does make vaccines mandatory, does someone sue for discrimination because they don't want to take or to have reasons for not being able to take it? If they do make them mandatory, can someone sue if they get side effects, as you mentioned, from the vaccine? If they don't make them mandatory, what if a worker gets COVID and says, look, as my employer, you didn't do enough to try and protect me? There is just no clarity at this point. Now, it's not long at all next month by the looks of things that New South Wales will open up hospitality venues. 
hospitality businesses have been told that you must only admit fully vaccinated uh, staff and also patrons. They have been told by the Premier that there will be a public health order to back this up and give you some legal protection. But for other businesses, it's much less clear. There hasn't been any case law established yet. Now, the Fair Work Ombudsman has tried to uh, give some guidance around this to the best of their ability. They're saying, look, look at your employees. Is that someone who will be exposed frequently to the public? Uh, what is the risk of catching COVID in that particular area? How available and how effective are the vaccines? So consider all of these things. And on that basis, you might imagine that someone like Qantas, who is mandating this for their frontline staff, particularly someone based in Sydney, a cabin crew member, has a pretty good grounds. But we just don't know yet. And the closer and closer we get to New South Wales and Victoria both opening up, inevitably, with cases still in the community, uh, the more businesses are absolutely fairly clamouring for some guidance. And they've done it so tough, they need some guidelines now really how to move do. forward. Okay, thanks, Jen. Thanks, Andrew. It was an inspirational and historic trip in so many ways. And just because they're on terra firma tonight, the all amateur crew on SpaceX's most recent voyage say the inspiration doesn't stop. Dr. Cyan Proctor, a geologist, artist and now astronaut, was the first black woman to pilot a spacecraft and only the fourth to travel to space. She says her journey sends a powerful message to girls and women everywhere. One of the things for me that was important was to, um, you know, representation and being able to talk to, you know, girls of color and women of color about my experience and even older women who sometimes when you think that, you know, the best part of your life has passed you by as you've gotten older, that there's still a lot to learn and a lot to explore and a lot to do. Um, and then that message of there's no better place than home. And I think that view of our earth and how beautiful it is and how I can share that perspective as an artist and a poet will be, um, I hope, special. Very special message. Now, tonight we are celebrating the best and brightest on our screens. Hit shows and stars cleaning up at the 73rd Emmy Awards, the first in person since COVID hit. Entertainment reporter Ross King is in Los Angeles, Los Angeles with all the highlights. Ross, everyone is talking about a guy called Ted. <laughs> Certainly are, Andrew Fate probably two Ted's because Ted Sarandis who runs Netflix well they won 44 Emmys in total that's a record but the other Ted is Ted Lasso what a night it was for that team Jason Sudeikis who plays the lead role and also created the show he won for best actor and also the show won best comedy my old pal Hannah Waddington won for best supporting uh, role as an actress and then Brett Goldstein the man who plays the hard man Roy, he also won too. And in keeping with his character, he was told not to swear at all. <laughs> so what did he do? He swore, but he got bleeped. So um, it was a very interesting night indeed. Yeah, a lot of the nominees and winners were actually beamed in from a special screening in London, including The Crown's Olivia Colman. She became quite emotional while dedicating her award. Let's have a listen. I'm going to be very quick because I'm very teary. I wish my dad was here to see this. So... I lost my daddy during COVID and um, he would have loved all of this. Oh, it was a sad note, but otherwise it was a really winning night for the Crown too. It certainly was, Andrew. People talking about it, about the Brit invasion again, the show itself winning uh, the best drama series. That's the first time it's ever done that. Uh, you had Gillian Anderson, who picked up her award for her portrayal of Margaret Thatcher. You also had the best supporting actor, and that was in the tape shape of Tobias Menzies when he played Prince Philip. Josh O'Connor 
also won lead actor for his role as Prince Charles. He was the only one who actually made it out to the award ceremony here in LA. And of course, as you mentioned there, Olivia Coleman winning lead actress uh, for her final series of The Crown. Very emotional too. Yeah. Uh, big wins also for Hacks and The Queen's Gambit, which was really popular. Oh, yeah. Now, Jean Smart and Hacks, she just gets better with age. It's her fourth Emmy. Congratulations to her. Absolutely brilliant performance in that. Another two awards for that show, and also, as you mentioned there, The Queen's Gambit, or as, as one of the staff members called it, the Orphan Girl Chess Drama. It won two <laughs> awards, too. So it really has been quite the night out here and quite a night for the ladies. Um, also, a couple of controversies from the awards, Ross. The first, a lack of diversity among winners. Not the first time we've heard this complaint. No, absolutely not. And now plenty of diversity when it came to the nominations. And we also thought that certainly uh, there would be a few people of colour who would actually win. But when it came to the actual categories, the main acting categories, all the winners were white. Mm. Um, also, people worried about the fact that they're great fashion, but not a lot of masks during this um, ceremony. No, and uh, actor and comedian Seth Rogen was the first presenter to come out and he made uh, kind of light of the whole situation. He said, you know, I thought we were going to hold this uh, outdoors. It wasn't a tent, but as he put it, it was hermetically sealed. So he wasn't too happy about it. Said if he'd known that, he wouldn't have been there. But everyone in the tent had to go through a PCR test within 48 hours and also everyone was vaccinated too. But as you know, Ange, out here, all these stars, they're just exactly the same as us. They get up in the morning, they put on their pants one leg at a time and then after that, it's completely different. Just like us, Ross. <laughs> Thank you so much. One of the few reporters who are down on the red carpet today. Thanks, Ross. Now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Ange. The Nikkei was closed today for a holiday and Japanese investors were no doubt grateful for the reprieve, given the sea of red engulfing the rest of the region. Local markets tumbled, led by miners, on fears over just how low the iron ore price will sink. That's after the price has more than halved since May. And after a sorry finish on Friday, Wall Street is gearing up for more losses tonight, setting US traders up for a poor September, with all major indices tracking lower so far this month. In a rare bright spot, oil has held its ground better than most after the recent commodities rout, while the Aussie dollar continues on its almost uninterrupted slide so far this month. Ange. Thank you for your company this evening from the team here at 7 News. That is the latest. I'm Angela Cox. Good night.